Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin, and today I'm here with my co-host, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Summer. And we welcome in studio Hiba Ansari. Hiba is a strategy consultant with an interest in social intrapreneurship. Hiba, first of all, thanks for coming on. I know you have been up since 3 in the morning, and we are recording it almost at 9 p.m. today on a Friday. I'm honored to be here and glad that I got a chance to come and thank you Mahin for driving me 40 minutes to come pick me up not a problem you know I you did a TED talk this past summer and since then I was really trying to get you on and these guys were like hey man she better be worth it because you've been talking about her for months (laughs) and and I was like you know she even went to Michigan and that's usually like a reason for me to like cancel any podcast guest (laughs) you know because me being Ohio an Ohio State grad so you know, in light of that, you know, I'm still happy that we were able to connect and have you on here. But uh, as we get started, I-, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your, you're what, 24 years old? Mm-hmm. 24, wow. 20, 25 this Mashallah. year. MashaAllah. So, and you've got into strategy consulting pretty much out of undergrad. How did you end up in that, in that kind of career uh, coming out of school? So it's interesting because like every other brown kid, I started out as a pre-medder. So I took your introductory chemistry, biology. I thought that was the path that I wanted to go down. Um, And I took the classes and I hated the classes. I cannot tell, like just not interesting. I mean, I'm sure part of it was they were weeder courses. So they're meant to, you know, get the students to be challenged. Um, But I I really liked the problem solving aspect of when you're uh, a doctor, right? So you have a patient that comes in, you don't really know what's wrong with them. So you're asking a series of questions to try to understand what their issue is and potentially what could be the best solution for them. Um, And to me, that was really exciting and really fun and consulting offered that, but at a much larger scale, right? So rather than talking to one person at a time as you are a doctor, you're affecting hundreds of millions of lives at a time when you're uh, especially as a Fortune 500 company. Um, and so consulting seemed like a great way to get those types of problem-solving skills, but doing it at a larger scale. And the idea for me was it would be a really good skill set to start out with when you know when I want to eventually do some more work in the social sector, I could bring those skills with me. Because when I had done some volunteering with nonprofits um, and the like in Michigan, I had seen uh, some of that business efficiency or mindset missing. And I think some was for good reason, right? There's a reason this, those two don't overlap. Yeah. Key Rick Snyder and the Flint water crisis, but um, there's also some overlap and some benefit in the skills that you have. So a lot of people, when they come out of undergrad or they, they're in undergrad, they want to get into consulting. They almost try to reverse engineer this whole master plan. Like working at a consulting firm is like the end game. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I talk to, my friends who have been successful in working at consulting firms after college, it's almost like they just fell into it. How would you describe your experience comparatively? So I think I had explored a few other fields before I chose consulting. So I had taken a look at finance and decided that was not for me. I did marketing, so I did an internship at Unilever, and I really enjoyed the experience, but I was still looking for something that was uh, more about the analytics. And so I think I was intentional about recruiting for consulting, but um, again, it's whatever Allah SWT has planned for you, right? And so those consulting interviews are very tough. And it's also a bit of luck, right? So do you get along with your interviewer? What type of cases do you get? Um, what credentials do you bring to the table? So I did intentionally go for consulting. 
Um, but, you know, I guess I would say that I got it because of what whatever Ellis Bondel had planned. Absolutely. Now, on your TED Talk, and I found this really interesting, you talked about if there isn't a career that you want to, that doesn't that exist for you, like people, you create your own. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, let's segue a little bit into this whole thing called social entrepreneurship. You know, that's really insightful for a 24-year-old, to be honest. Um, <laughs> how do you even get, like, into that mindset of creating, like, hey, the job I want does not exist in this world, so I'm going to create it? You know, it's funny because it comes out of me not being happy. So um, when I was doing one of my internships in undergrad, for me, um, I... I was going to work every day and I dreaded going into work. And that was an awful feeling to know that what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life is something you really don't want to be going to. So um, I wanted to enjoy what I was doing and find happiness in what I was doing. And so um, I tried to figure out what is it that I liked. And that's part of where consulting came into the play where I was like, I don't quite yet know what I like or don't like. Consulting seems like I would get skill sets I need to get into something I would like, which I knew was generally social impact. But you ask anybody about social impact. Well, well, let me back up. When someone tells you they're interested in social impact, that's a red flag, number one, because social impact is such a broad field. So when someone says, I want to do social impact work, and you ask them, okay, tell me about what you want to do, and they can't name something specific, it means they haven't done that work enough yet. And that was me, because I said, I want to do social impact work. And so I would talk to folks and they say, well, do you like education? Like, do you like hunger, economics? Like, what do you like? And I couldn't name anything because I hadn't done any of that work. So I think um, it's incredibly important to have experience in the field and to um, be able to articulate what is it that you want to do. So I knew I wanted to do social impact. I knew I wanted this problem-solving skill set. So I went into consulting, and I kind of made my own... Um, way into bridging the gap between consulting and social impacts, so whether that was joining or seeking out opportunities at work or outside of work. So one of the projects I just finished up was with the city of Detroit. Um, I did a pro bono project totally outside of work, just volunteering in my free time with two of my friends um, with the Office of Immigrant Affairs. So we worked on refugee employment strategy because I found that within social impact, I really enjoy employment work. So one one quick question that I had was, um, when you said that somebody says they want to do something, you know, in social impact or they want to uh, impact their environment, mm-hmm. um, does that mean that if in in your profession that if they don't know exactly what they want to impact, that's kind of looked at as something um, like is that a lack of seriousness on their side, or does that mean that they just haven't thought about it, or is it does that just mean they really want to do something good, they just don't know what they want to do yet? I think it's usually the last one, right? It's somebody okay. who has the right intention, but hasn't necessarily taken the action to do something about it. So it's almost like somebody giving you a, a homework assignment and saying like, I want to do really good on this, and then not filling out the homework assignment, right? So you got to do a little bit of the work on mm. your own. And so um, I'm always happy to chat with people and say, like, I can direct you to these few companies or organizations if you're interested in education or these two if you're interested in employment. But you got to give me something. So you got to put yourself out there try a few things, figure out what it is that you like and out, and also what fits well with your skill set. Hmm. And the reason I'm asking is sometimes we uh, feel that we need to do something, but we haven't gone that extra step to be proactive, you know, and I think that's really important. Yes, exactly. I, mean, I, th- I think that's the key. So uh, what I'm hearing is, you know, as 
you're developing your idea and you're figuring out, okay, how exactly do I want to find my space in the world and create that social impact before you can really carve out your niche. You have to explore a few different areas and be able to say, okay, which is the one that I'm the most passionate about and drawn to? Would you say that it's, um, it's a good idea for undergrads or uh, students exploring this to look into volunteer opportunities in these different fields? Is that like actual, you know, experience that maybe they could use later on when they go into like different consulting groups or whatever to say, okay, look, I've volunteered in these different organizations that also work toward the same mission? Yeah. Um, I would, well, one, I would say you don't have to be a student to be, to decide that social impact work is what you want to do, right? Like this is something that can happen to anybody at any stage of life. Um, sure. The intention. And I think it, that's exactly right. It's about seeking out an experience. And for me, I think the experiences that I had doing both nonprofit work, but then in finance and in marketing, it was all those experiences built up over time that helped me figure out what is it that I like and what do I not like? What do I find rewarding and without those experiences it's all theoretical right mm. and so you don't really get a chance to know like do i like the work or do i not like the work until you actually do it i'm a huge proponent of if you like something find someone who you think is doing what you want to do and go shadow them or go try to seek out an experience similar to theirs absolutely and i think i think that's definitely a piece of advice that you know anybody can take is like before you're jumping into a career and looking at oh what's the salary that they make or consulting's where you want to be at the end game but okay, what's the day-to-day -day like? Mm -hmm. Because this is going to be my life that I have to like live on a daily basis and wake up and want to be there in the morning. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't think there's anything, there's no such thing as a bad experience. Even an experience that you don't enjoy, you have learned an incredible Absolutely. amount from um, and that you can talk about in the future. It's all about if you can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, just, just based on that, I think... Uh, um, we advance a lot more when we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we're afraid to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations because obviously it doesn't feel good. But I think that's when we uh, we grow the most, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, outside our comfort of, zone. Of course, of course. And I think that's that's actually the best thing for us, right? Um, and sometimes discomfort is one of those things that um, not only does it uh, raise us um, in whatever that we're doing, but also in our iman, right? Mm -hmm. um, because when we come out of that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks about inna ma'al usri yusra, that with hardship comes ease. But it's not only ease, it's also, it puts you in a better situation, right? And um, and, and that's why I think this this is a very awesome topic, is um, job creation and being innovative in business is something that um, Islam has always encouraged, mm -hmm. right? We have endless amount of sahaba that created certain uh, niches for themselves and they advanced in it, right? So I think that this is something that is best for both worlds, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Khadija was one of is one of my personal role models, especially as a woman and a leader of in course. business. Yes. I mean, incredible. Yes. Incredible. Yes. Like, I really want listeners to understand that they don't have to be, if they are a 35-year-old IT guy or engineer, that they can't do this. Because I'm actually, one of the projects that I'm trying to, I, I'm an engineer in my day job, and I've been trying to work with this organization called Mauru Chicago. Uh, I'm kind of banging my head against the wall. Maybe, maybe you and I got to talk more, but <laughs> I was like, I want to help solve this gun violence issue in Chicago because the gun violence is something I care about, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's what, you know, as Muslims, you know, especially if we have the time for it, we should be able to like try to commit to these things outside of work. And I think that's kind of, that's, and like you said, just go do it. Go try to do stuff and then eventually stuff will kind of like fall into place. Right. Not necessarily reading about things. A lot of people are like very well read. They know what's going on, but there's no action. 
Yes. And do you think that's a a, crit- a critical problem we have in our community where people like you go to Dawat saying we're Daisies here, right? So Dawats are what's Arab? What's Arabic for Dawat? Dawat, same thing. Same thing. Okay. It's like dinner party. Dinner party, yeah. yeah. You know, growing up, it's like your dads and all the uncles and aunties in the in the community are just talking about politics and usually irrelevant. Like in my case, Bangladeshi politics. Yeah. In Ohio, <laughs> um, but not doing anything, right? And you're just like mad about stuff. Well, that's the perfect topic to talk about. Talk about because what are you going to do about Bangladesh's politics? You're right. going to sit there and talk about it. So <laughs> exactly. that's perfect. You know, um, whereas you're coming from an angle of, okay, find some stuff that find something you can do something about, and then just jump in. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that pretty much the message you have? Yes, I, th- I think it's seek the experience that you want, and if you don't find it, create it. Right? Like, th- I think that's the m- most helpful thing I have ever done is just if I find something interest interesting or something I'm passionate about, to just go do it. And, and even along this line, like you said, you want to do something about the gunfire. I don't know if we can kind of set up a mock uh, problem solving thing here of how you would deal with But yeah. like you can either be, uh, and I don't, it, it, well, I'm just going to say it, but you can either be a foot soldier and try to go person to person and solve the problem. Or you can climb up the ladder and you have to go to the root of the problem, see where the problem is, right? And it's a very political thing, right? People have tried to do the, you know, initiative of, you know, increase the peace and all that and anti-gun violence stuff. But if you really think about it, it hasn't really solved too much. It's raised some awareness. But how much, where, what, what facet do we have to tap into to actually make a, a big difference, right? And I think that's where you have to start being innovative and start thinking on that level. Of, uh, do I do I actually have to get involved in politics now? Do I have to, uh, you know, do I have to get involved with the lobbies now, mm-hmm. right? Because even the anti-gun lobby hasn't is is, is nothing is not doing anything compared to the NRA. The NRA has so much power um, and money, funding, lots funding. of funding. And you would have to be, if you were to ask me, you would have to be at that level with the NRA to actually do something, right? But I think that's part of that, like that thinking that you like either you go big or you go home. I think can sometimes be intimidating for of folks course, who want to get involved in a um, in a topic. And so even doing something small, so like getting involved in an organization that's doing something, will get you a foot in the door in learning about how the problem is approached today, and that can lead to the innovation, of course, right? Of course, as well. Or you can go big. And like try to tackle it at the highest levels. There's, <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong. Yeah. It's about your comfort level and your skill set and, and what yeah. you're interested in. Yeah. So what I've tried, I've tried, we, we've tried a couple of things. So we've done like basic block cleanups in poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. just to kind of get a presence. So just to get an idea, you know, and then talk to people. We've tried needs assessments in certain neighborhoods. Um, and then it's funny because we went to Humboldt Park for a needs assessment. Oh, wow. And, uh, they were like, oh, we we showed up there and we realized Humble Humboldt Park's been gentrified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're like, there's, there's like uh, white people here playing in parks now. I was like, uh, and they were like, yeah, everything's good here, man. We're, we're all good. We don't, we don't need nothing. That's what they told us. So, and then right now I'm trying to work in with CPS trying mm-hmm. to, I have, uh, my friend's younger brother is an ACT tutor there. So it's just like, but then there's so much red tape. Like you can't keep just kids past 4 30 or 5 o'clock even just yeah. to like yeah. build like a mentorship program or something right and even sometimes i'm thinking about stuff like okay i'll we'll pick these kids up but I'm like honestly i thought it in my head the other day like i don't know if i would be comfortable with a bunch of random kids like in my car they might be packing heat they might just check my car i mean it is like some people might say that's racist but that was like a fear that entered my head no, you didn't talk second. about any color in specific you're just yeah. talking about an area that yeah you know. i mean but like 
it feels like for me, I'm trying. I'm just like I don't. I don't have necessarily a consulting background. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm an engineer in a manufacturing facility, and I've read like like two books on gun violence in the inner city, right? And then you just kind of start trying stuff, and it's like a hammer. Yeah, you know. Um, so now going back to uh, your career as a as an analyst, this is like a pretty intense corporate environment, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about life as like you know, a mid-twenties Mahajaba sister working in, like, intense corporate America. This is, like, we're talking, like, a place that you're grinding, like, 80, 90 hours a week. So, um, I I will say this. I think there's there's a handful of Muslim women. I, I never thought about it as a, as a ceiling, per se. I just don't think I realized it going in. As an undergrad, I mean, I grew up in a Muslim community predominantly. I went to Michigan, where there's such a big Muslim community. In the business school, I think there were six of six Muslims in my class. So I I started to get a taste of, okay, well, I'm one of few. And I think when I entered the workforce, that was a big wake-up call that there are not many. And I am very grateful for the opportunity because I think very few companies would give um, a position like the one that I have um, to somebody who wears a hijab because of the stigma associated with it, right? Because on a day-to-day basis, I'm talking to clients or I'm doing client services. And so I'm expected to command the respect of and be credible in front of clients. And to the great credit of the company, not once has it come up like, oh, you're, you know, you wear hijab. We don't think you're right for the job. Not that anybody would say that to me, but that I got the job offer that, I've, you know, done well, alhamdulillah, um, and gotten the respect of my peers as well as my managers, I think uh, I'm I'm really grateful for. No, I think it's powerful, mashallah. That's awesome. It's very powerful. And, now, you, and there's you been no change, sorry, uh, as, as far as... Because, like, you see, obviously, Islamophobia is ramp, ramped up now, mm-hmm, right? Under mm-hmm. the, the new administration. So, and you felt no, no change at work necessarily as a result of that. So, I will, so I will say this. I think... What is unfortunate about what has come in with the new administration has been um, the safety and security of folks like myself because of Islamophobia, but also our our other black, brown um, brothers and sisters, you know, fellow women and so on have also had their safety and security threatened. And so from a company standpoint, I think I have been and generally speaking in corporate America, I've been disappointed by the lack of response. Right. So yeah. The silence—it's deafening. The silence, um, just because so many of the employees are affected by it, but it's not enough to be a majority, and that's why you don't hear anything. Because if you think about the executives, the boardrooms, the board of directors, there are not that many folks who are minorities in those positions, and so that trickles down into how they approach mm. the company, how they think about um, issues that don't affect them directly. So then, therefore, it's a non-issue. Hmm. Sure. So, like, obviously taking a look at the bigger spectrum of what's going on and then, like, you being in the company that you're in, what do you feel like, you know, alhamdulillah, you've gotten the job, but obviously you've done something, right? Because otherwise, you, like you said, you're there's one. Right? There's <laughs> one in all of North America. So what do you feel like is something that's helped you? combat that Islamophobia or maybe some of those deep-rooted, you know, like maybe even doubts that, you know, someone might have, but be able to see past that and say, wow, Heba actually brings so much credibility and all these other things to the position. But Mm -hmm. how are you able to convey that and get people to look past the hijab? Because I feel like whenever I initially meet people, 
I have to try, <laughs> yeah. like, make sure I'm wearing my friendly blue scarf that day and, yep. you know, smiling really big and, you know, just have my face on to be like, I'm friendly and I'm available to chat, you know. Um, so I know that, that that's kind of like a daily struggle no matter where you work. But yeah, maybe from your perspective, because you've been able to kind of uh, break through a few more barriers there. So I will say this. I don't think I'm the only one because I have some spectacular special talent. I actually think it's a talent pipeline issue because we, especially in the Muslim community and in the South Asian Muslim community, always send all our kids to become doctors or engineers or lawyers. You don't see anything outside of that. And I remember when I approached my parents about going into business, they were like, are you going to make money? Like, are you going to have a job at the end of this? I mean, you could get a great career as a doctor. Um, And Alhamdulillah, they've been so supportive since I made that decision to be in business. And I am so proud to make them proud. But um, I will say that there's a talent pipeline issue. We don't send enough of our Muslim women, both, I, I should say this, Muslim women and men, into business because we don't think it's a viable career path. Yeah. Well, what interested you about business? And like, did you make that decision in high school or was it like your sophomore year of college? It was like the backup plan. So mm-hmm. like, so I had the med school as plan A. And if I wasn't going to get into med school, at least I had a business degree so that I could get a job. Um, and it was actually an email that got sent out to the MSA. I knew I was going to apply, but the MSA, Muslim Student Association, had sent out an email from one of the business school students saying, hey, we'll help the kids who are applying. We'll, you know, just take a look at your application and, you know, do essay edits with you. Um, And I think that, like, there has been someone like that for me every step of the way, like, no matter what. And I think that's what's what's made the difference for me. That's really amazing that you're bringing up that point of mentorship and having someone at each kind of step of the process, because... I'm seeing this more and more and more of the, you know, non-for-profits I'm working with or different uh, avenues I'm getting into. Every time you see someone who's successful, they haven't necessarily reached that success on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, bi'ithnillah, they, you know, through his grace and his blessings, but then there's also always a support system around them, whether that's, you know, someone professionally as a mentor or someone at home that's been supporting them and being able to, you know, encourage them or motivate them in some way. So that mentorship, I think, is really key. What do you think is like a really great way to seek out someone who's going to be an effective mentor for you? What if, what's been your experience there? So, I mean, I think it goes back to your original question. Um, I think for me, it is people are willing to invest in you if you invest in yourself. So if you put in the hard work day in, day out, you show someone that you're willing to work hard, that you're you're working on the things that you've set as goals. And that you value yourself. And that you value yourself. Mm-hmm. People will invest in you. And you, I mean, you have to ask them. That's the mm-hmm. second thing. So invest in yourself and then ask. Because nobody is just going to come, you know, doors springing mm-hmm. open like, hey, do you want to be mentored? It's uh, It's about seeking out that those people. So for me, it was working my butt off as hard as I could to show people I'm trustworthy. I'm the, we call it having a set of safe hands. I was the safe hands. Mm. Um, and so then people are like, wow, this person worked really hard and they made me look good. Um, and I see that they have set these goals for themselves. And, and then the second step was going to go seek that mentorship. So saying, Hey, I really value your advice. I really value your opinion. Um, I have a few questions. Um, these are the goals I'm working on. You know, what do you think? And you start you start baby steps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you can ask for mentorship right off the bat. But I've found it to be more helpful to, you know, casually walk into the relationship and test out the waters, right? If they say, 
I think a really good test for if someone's willing to be a mentor for you is if they're willing to put aside time for you anytime in like the next month or two, then they're willing to be interested in you. If you find that when you try to schedule 30 minutes with them and it never happens and mm. six months go by, they're not interested. Mm. You know, I think door. that's really that's the other problem. angle is really that a lot of young people like I've felt this in our community. Th- honestly, it's not going to come out the right way. Their egos are too big to be mentored. Mm. You know, I remember, I don't know if Sh- uh, Sheikh Amr, well, Sheikh Amr, you're in Mauritania, but if Sim or Summer <laughs> can, you know, it, what your experiences were as far as, I remember when I graduated MSA, you know, you would still be around or let's say you were a senior and then freshmen would be coming in, you'd try to talk to them and it's like, you're almost like parents, like mm-hmm. you're not, you're, you're being ignored. So, and that's why a lot of companies, these corporate mentorship programs, they fail because it's like almost like forced. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like if the student isn't ready, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what do we got to get through to, like, our young people, you think, to embrace mentorship? Because I think it's almost, like, I found it, like, most young people are just, high school, college age, are just not about that for some reason. Like, they know it all. Because <laughs> they've got Google. <laughs> and, like, they can That's tweet true. at anybody False they sense want. of confidence, yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I started working when I was quite young. So um, my first job quite was... Quite young, younger than now. Yeah, younger <laughs> than I am now. So, um, uh, I, you know, my parents did not want me to work. They were like typical brown parents who were like, focus on your grades, don't get a job. And I really wanted to go on spring break. And my friends were going on a cruise. And so I, the way I was going to get it is if I was going to pay for it myself. So I got a job at Marshall's so I could then I could then save up and I saved up to go on spring break. But that work experience was really tough. So it, mm-hmm. it, for me, it comes back to experience. It was I didn't have a great manager. My coworkers were amazing. My hours were tough. I was um, at that time manning the ladies department, the luggage department, skincare, and the fitting room by myself. And if you know women, we go to the fitting room multiple times with 10 clothes each. So, and then you want to leave it in a, you know, the floor in a good spot for when the next person comes. <laughs> so I was so overworked and so tired. Um, and I think w- that work experience made me value my coworkers, the ones who would come help me out. And so it was experiences when I was in times of difficulty that, Someone helped me and I wanted to return that favor uh, or that I sought out someone's help. Um, I think that's what gave me the mentality of I need to go seek somebody who's much more wise than I am. Um, One quick thing I had is might be a little off topic, but um, sometimes there's a fine line with somebody who's very heavily uh, involved in consulting to take upon somebody to mentor them because it's a very valuable time, right? Mm -hmm. And you're used to even a little piece of advice uh, and to sit with somebody for half an hour, um, you expect some monetary compensation, right? Um, And one thing that I came across is some people are willing to not mentor or it kind of seems that way because um, they feel like it's not a good enough investment sometimes. In the person? Yeah. So they don't think the person is worthwhile of their time. Yeah. Or just that that whole, like, in order to even mentor, they'll even charge, right? To mentor people. Oh, well, I haven't met anybody like that okay. yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've met a few people like that. Yeah. Uh, to mentor. And I mean, um, they want to make sure that person is valuing their time. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of. Um, but where is is that a false? Is that not a good idea to have to, to mentor somebody and think of it as like a consultation? 
I don't know. For me, uh, I think... It's a weird question. I apologize. No, no, this is something no. I was tickling my brain. No, for a while. it's a it's a good question, and it's making me think. So that's why I'm I'm taking a minute. But for me, I would never. I shouldn't say I would never because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> I would hesitate charging someone because to me that makes me think that I would have an inflated ego that my time is more important than someone else's time. That's not mm. to say that I haven't turned down opportunities. I have where somebody has potentially asked for mentorship just because I was at such strained capacity i could i could barely get time to sleep so i couldn't take on extra mentorship mm. at that point um but i don't like the mentality of my time is more worthwhile than someone else's time i will say this i am more apt to spend time with you if you are investing in yourself so that goes back to maybe this worthiness question mm of if somebody's just coming to you looking for handouts without doing any of the work, then there's very little incentive for mentorship. And there's also so much more work the mentor has to do to get that person there, Hmm. right? Yeah. No, I mean, I I see this parallel with like Islamic studies. Would you say like... Like you, I remember you guys talking about like in Egypt or Mauritania, you're trying to get like, especially with some like seniors, like some big scholar, they're making you like go through these tests or you hear them from the past you got to wait on my doorstep for like a, a day and then show up, right? <laughs> you got to earn your stripes. Yeah, and they'll only put in as much as you put in, right? Because they've got, you know, everyone at the end of the day has a limited amount of time, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Hiba, as we as we move along the conversation, you know, you've been able to accomplish a lot. Um, and we talked about the, the so-called glass ceiling and whatnot. But I feel like we have a competitive advantage as Muslims. We talked about this on the way here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I told like my coworker about you and she was like your age, but her mind is like blown. She's like, <laughs> she's like, how do you know all these people that are doing all these interesting things? Like, you know, they can, they can work at a, at a great consulting firm and then do social impact work, you know, on, on the side and pursue other interests. And I told her, you know what? It's a Muslim thing, you know, because I think they're, if you're practicing the Dean, you aren't caught up in a lot of the mumbo jumbo that other people are like, cause she told me like, Oh yeah, all my friends are just into partying and drinking and stuff. And so if you just waste your weekends doing that, then yeah, we're, that's what they live for. Um, and I was like, we have a different kind of YOLO. Yeah. So I, I want to get your, now certainly, but uh, when you see an example like yourself, that's what I see. But then at the same time, you see a lot of Muslims who aren't necessarily excelling in corporate America or in their careers. Like, What's the concept of Isan? You know, what's really the right idea? You know, you know, we seems like we have the we have the toolkit, mm-hmm. and you're people like you are executing it. But you, are you mass, about, we have the ethics. We have the ethics. We, to, we have the to ethics be successful in, in, in our yeah Islamic yeah. ethics, like Islam as a personal development program, which encourages business anyway. Yeah, right. Is set up perfectly for us if we just execute it. But then there seems to be still. Like not as much. I Meaning, Muslims pushing forward. We we just treat our jobs as just jobs, mm-hmm. and we're not like executing at a high level of excellence. Mm-hmm. So you're asking me why we don't execute at a high level of excellence? Yeah. W- w- what do you think? I mean, like I, I feel like when people when I look at Muslims who are doing really well, I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, they're they're Muslim and it, and it makes sense. They got everything together. There's so much baraka in their work. <laughs> and at the same time, you see Muslims just like in general. I think more. <sighs> 
you know, it just depends. I've been in various communities. It differs. Like a lot of communities, I would say they're just getting by. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in Chicago, you meet a lot of people who are doing amazing work. For mm-hmm. example, like in the bigger cities. Um, but like in in your experience, do you think there's some kind of like disconnect? I feel like if we managed things better as a community, we would be a lot better off. Like, okay, so because most of us work in corporate America at some level, mm-hmm. you know what mm-hmm. I mean, but. Like I'm certainly not as accomplished in my ten years as you have done in what your two years or whatever. I think you could. You are probably very well accomplished <laughs> in many other facets that are not as obvious. You know, but I mean, you, you, you get where I'm coming from, though. Yes, like, yes, yes. I, 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 I think a f- like when I was growing up, even early in my career, I was like, I don't want to be that uncle, that 45 year old uncle, <laughs> the pot belly, who's just the you know <laughs> IT manager or just a programmer. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about. Bengali politics. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Like, yes. Coming back to Bengali politics. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> always. Yeah, always Bengali politics. Yeah. Um and I was like and I was like telling like a friend of mine, like, yeah, we need to push if we're gonna be like <clears throat> like people of students of knowledge or scholars like Shikamar, we wanna push forward and be like the best students of knowledge and the top scholars. Like excel in that field. Like mm-hmm. go as far as you can go. If you're gonna be education like summer, you wanna go as far as you can. If you're gonna be corporate America, you're gonna like you should aspire for C-suite roles or to be partners in law firms or consulting firms. Don't just settle to be like the average because the Mormon community, I tell you what, there's an awesome book called The Mormon Way of Doing Business. And they're very religious too. They're not like slackers in religion. Mm. And I was like, why can't Muslims be that? And I asked one of our one of my Mashayak about this. And we were talking about Stephen Covey and the Mormon work ethic and all that stuff. I was like, yeah, well, all that stuff's in Islam, too. He's like, yeah, but culturally, you know, Yanni, we're just not ready for it. Well, yeah. I think some of it also happens because we've diluted our deen down to rituals, right? We're like, okay, what does my deen mean? It means I'm praying five times a day and I'm doing hijab and I'm staying away from pork and alcohol. That means I'm Muslim, right? Like pork and alcohol is first and then kind of those other things. And that that's what makes me Muslim. But um, just last weekend, we were listening to a talk about how before all of these ahkam were even revealed, there was very little that differentiated the non-Muslim kuffar from the Muslims. So they didn't look ethnically different. They didn't have a physical appearance outwardly that was different. But what made them different was the fact that Islam was standing up for social justice. It was speaking against being oppressive to orphans. It was speaking up against uh, unethical business practices, you know, and that was offensive to the upper echelon of the community of the society the kuffar at that time the Quraysh and so really the foundation of Islam really is built on this social justice but you're right we've had that disconnect we've had that disconnect where we're so focused on well how zabiha is this meat versus that meat and that's what's going to make me the best Muslim possible as opposed to wait what's the foundation of Islam standing up for the rights of others working to you know um, go against oppression of minorities and oppression of, of peoples and so that I think that disconnect is definitely there but we can segue into into your answer too yeah I think it's culture culture creates this barrier uh, between Per, a person, what they want to accomplish, I think, whether that's related to their dean or whether that's related to their career goals. If I think about the aunties and uncles I know, they have things they're so passionate about. They're so passionate about. My dad, I remember he he used to talk about solar power and like solar energy and sustainable energy from when I was a little kid. He loved it. And I think because of the cultural duty of 
uh, being, being a young brown man who needs to get married and needs to support his two wife and kids, his only goal was, okay, let me just get a job, support my family, which has Baraka in it, right? But was not his true passion. And, you know, subhanAllah, he's such a good role model for me because he has found his way into doing that type of work at a company. Mm. Um, and I think that's, it's a great uh, aspiration for me as well and a role model for me um, to see him and his eyes light up when he talks about something he's really passionate about. But we let culture or uh, this false sense of obligation dictate what we can and cannot do. And also, we're a pretty diverse community. You know, we're not really monolithic in a mm-hmm. sense. I mean, that, that may have something to do with it. Um, but yeah, the, the cultural, like, I, I think a lot of it too is a lot of our parents, like, like I wasn't born, I was born in Bangladesh, so my, my parents immigrated here. Mm-hmm. And I think the hard work was just getting over here. That was their big hurdle. Yeah. You know, and then you kind of, it, it's almost like that, the Ibn Khaldun theory. You know what I'm talking about? Where the first generation... Um, oh, resides is too busy with themselves. No, the first generation builds it up. The second yeah. generation, like, saw it. Yeah. But, like, didn't grind as much in the third generation. And then, like, you recycle everything. Yeah. You know? I don't know if it's something like that either. That, like, you know, maybe right now we're in a phase where... Because I, I don't remember uncles and aunties, like, for example, doing the kind of work you were doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I meet a lot more people. Like it also got, didn't uh, exist then either, right? Because yeah. like we're they're paving the way for these brand new ideas and these brand new roles and these brand new careers that didn't even exist back then. Yeah. In some ways, but it, it was more of a survival thing too, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. More yeah. about yeah. getting here. And remember, some of our parents didn't even know any English when they got here, yeah. even though some of them may have been pretty educated. Navigating right? all the different right. systems. Yeah, and, and just getting accustomed with the culture, the language yeah. barrier, the expression culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they were just like, as long as my family's safe, as long as they're eating, that's all I care about. Mm-hmm. So what's the best way to do that, right? Yeah. As of right now, the fastest way to do that, right? So um, um, and sometimes there is some type of mindset that naturally that they're going to have that we're going to obviously inherit based on their teachings that, you know, just do this and obey the law and don't do anything else. Don't get into too many, you know, discussions. Don't get into any arguments. Just go to school and come back. You know, don't worry about other people's opinions. Just have this. This is how you're supposed to conduct your life. And obviously that plays a role on our, on our, on our self and our system too, right? Mm-hmm. Of how we're going to be progress, uh, how we're going to, uh, how we look at progress basically. Right. And even if you look at when I was in high school, um, it was kind of weird to tell my parents that, um, you know, you have to look at the other way of how people do things. It was a very awkward conversation, right? Well, what if, what if we were to do it this way, right? No, we do it this way. This is how it's supposed to be done. You're talking rubbish. Yeah. Just do it this way and you'll be fine. You'll be safe and don't go against the law. You know, that's all I used to hear. But I mean, it, and, and that's, that's very awesome that they taught us those ethics, right? And that has a very, uh, it plays a very strong role in our lives too. But um, to, to get to what you were talking about, I don't think it only has to do with uh, uh, laziness, as some people claim they're right off as Muslims are very lazy. I don't think that's what it is either. I think sometimes Muslims feel like they're very bound and everything's very restricted upon them, right? And there's there's very little wiggle room for them to do anything. Like everything's haram, kind of. <laughs> no, and, and I think that is a big portion of Muslims. Well, yeah, because they'll be like, well, corporate America deals with like big exactly. banks and it's interest and it's haram, so exactly. I'm going to try to avoid in as all much fairness, as I can. In, in all fairness, you know, and, and um, um, I think there is some legitimacy to, to when Muslims feel that they can't be as successful as other 
groups and other uh, other people is because we are somewhat restricted in some ways right and in all fairness we shouldn't ever believe that we are and, and i don't mean for the I don't, i'm not saying this for us to be underachievers i'm just saying that there are restrictions that we have which is our test and no one ever said that we are going to be as most of the most successful people monetarily there are going to be obstacles that we have that we have to live with and sometimes you know monetarily sometimes we're going to have to settle with second and third because of certain obstacles that we have religiously and um I, that's just something we have to live with right and that's something that we have to uh be strong about right so i think that there's that situation too where we're we are bound in some ways sure right than other groups oh yeah ultimately what we'll see as muslims being bound you know away from interest or away from that you know we're even seeing that there are certain diseases that are only carried by pigs i think it was like yeah. really big in the news just now you know and yeah we may think that we're missing out on you know the bacon sandwich or whatever but ultimately you know later down the line we see that wow this actually protected you know muslims from a certain calamity and so maybe similarly we'll see the same thing happening with interest and like with other financial things that we can't involve ourselves in there there'll be some other baraka in our risk or there'll be something else that you know through the risk that we earn there's so many more social impact projects or so social entrepreneurship, whereas in other situations it might not happen. Yeah, now that Dean Halal beef bacon is so good. <laughs> so, turkey bacon all the way. I, I can't do turkey bacon. There's not enough fat in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hiba, before we uh, can kind of wrap up, I want to really talk about this social intrapreneurship because that's not even a term I could probably find in the dictionary, I, su- I assume, right? I think it's a relatively new term. So last maybe 10 to 15 years. Is so when talk to us a little it. bit about that. So social entrepreneurship comes out of this word, which is social entrepreneurship. And the idea being social entrepreneurship has many, many definitions. But um, uh, the main core that I kind of adhere to is the idea of doing business for good. Um, And so you have business, but you're also trying to do good social impact work through whatever organization that you have. Social entrepreneurship is a little bit different. So it takes the entrepreneurial element of social entrepreneurship and implements it within an organization. So you essentially are a change maker for good within your organization. Um, And so if you think about something like corporate social responsibility programs, which have been implemented by all the big corporations in the last 10 to 15 years, the majority of them have come out of someone who was a social entrepreneur in their company. They were like, this is something that's important to me. I want to do this good. I think the company has the resources to do it and it would be in their interest to do it. I'm going to figure out a way to make this happen. Mm, that's interesting. And so it doesn't even just have to be social impact related. It can also be somebody who implemented an HR program that, you know, recruits diversity candidates. That could be social entrepreneurship. So there's so many, so many different ways. But the idea is an entrepreneur who's trying to make a difference of good within an organization. Well, like you're saying that this also impacts the company itself in mm-hmm. a good way. So, for example, my husband's company, they do volunteer time off. So... You know, every few months he'll say, "Okay, you know, my company is sponsoring us to have volunteer time off for a half day. Let's go clean up this neighborhood or something. I'm trying to figure out, like you're saying, what is that motivation that that company has to, you know, say, "Okay, I'm going to give this employee time off to go and volunteer here or we're going to give them, you know, we're going to apply some of these other social entrepreneurship ideas. Mm -hmm. What's going to be their motivation and driving force? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, corporation, big bucks, they're (laughs) making money off this somehow, some way. They are. (laughs) They're benefiting a lot. So, um, so. 
for me, there's two parts to it. One is the social entrepreneur that's successful to implement the program is actually somebody normally who has a lot of credibility. So they've gotten the trust of um, senior management or whoever's directly above them. And they're a really good salesperson. So they figured out like what's important to the company and they're able to sell their idea in such a way that, hey, it's going to benefit you. Usually for most corporations, it's the idea of a a, attracting talent, because these days, that's the most important thing that's on every corporation's mind. How do I attract the best people to come work for me? Hmm. Because if I get the best people, I can let them do their work hands off, and it'll push my company forward. I mean, this is it's a talent war these days. Um, and I think the second thing that they benefit from is the PR. So beyond just attracting employees, the general PR, brand reputation is incredibly important mm. these days, especially as we're seeing this, you know, it's so prevalent to me post-election, but what brands are associating themselves with and a corporation thinks of themselves as a brand. And so being able to put this on their PR, or their marketing is incredibly beneficial for them. Yeah, I think that leads to things like Fortune most one admired list for example right mm-hmm. like our com- my company got in because they were able to handle this ebola crisis in liberia because mm-hmm. we have mines out there and just things like that so that that's really interesting it seems like a takeaway from this is like for people that want to kind of create their own career and they think social impact's a way to do it but they are for example i don't know let, let's say you work for craft and you're like think about all the food that's probably actually good that they scrap mm-hmm. that doesn't meet the quality standards but it's still edible it's still like good food they give if they're able to give it away, for example, to like people who are hungry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As an example, but like, let's say you work for Kraft, you're a 26 year old, I don't know, business analyst, accountant, whatever. You know, I see, it seems like what you're saying is, you know, work on projects outside of work for hunger, mm-hmm. but then establish yourself at work as well. Like, yes. You have to add that credibility to be able to make that push to lobby upper management to buy in. Yeah, if you're not valued by your company, no one's going to give you their ear. Mm. You got you have to have that credibility and that trust and that's that goes back to the original point of you have to work really hard in your company and that makes an incredible amount of difference when you're proposing an idea. Yeah, you know, I heard um Sheikh Hussein Abdul Sattar say this that he's like it is impossible as a human being to compartmentalize your life where you can be a slacker at work and then be awesome at everything else. <laughs> because it'll automatically like just kind of seep into the other parts of your life. If you work hard at work, you'll work hard in everything else and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the whole takeaway here. Um, he, but we will wrap it up right now because I know Osama is trying to get back to the gym. He is. <laughs> he is. He's on a stricter diet and exercise regimen than I probably will yeah. ever be. Um, yeah. And we're Us- trying to get him for the gym closes. Osama's <laughs> being a very, uh, he's been a real trooper coming out here tonight with her. And uh, so, before I finish off, uh, Sheikh Amr and Osama were like, what, neighbors like 11 years ago? Uh, we lived together, buddy. I probably knew him before his wife knew him. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's, it's, it's always good. Uh, as Mad Mum looks, we always reconnect people too. So if we will host your next family reunion, just give us a shout. <laughs> you know, Hiba Jazakallah Khair for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Jazakallah. Um, and the last me. thing is... Uh, if there's, if you want to look up your TED Talk, I think you can just go to YouTube and just search your name, Heba, H-E-B-A, I'm sorry, A-N-S-A-R-I, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that, you'll work. find it. That was the one at Northwestern, so we look forward to a lot more great things from you, alhamdulillah. Yeah, Thank inshallah, you. Inshallah, inshallah, it'll happen, it'll inshallah. happen, and we'll have you again, hopefully soon, for more cool projects that you're t- here to tell us about. And we may even inshallah. be taking a drive to Michigan sometime in the next year or so. Yeah, so Hiba's brother-in-law, Abdurrahman al-Sayed, is running for governor of Michigan, so we hopefully... Uh, inshallah, we will uh, make a trip out there. 
Uh, shout out to Abdurrahman and you know hopefully we'll be future governor of Michigan. Inshallah, <laughs> inshallah. inshallah. <laughs> you know, so uh, for um, as far as the podcast goes, uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at themadmumlukes at gmail Like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. For my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Summer, and for our special guest, Hiba Ansari, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>